You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast where I interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 128. So this is the uh, last episode of 2020. Hope you're having a good holiday season on what has been a crazy and surreal year. Uh, looking forward to 2021. I already have some authors lined up, so stay tuned for new episodes coming up in 2021. So the final interview of 2020 is a great one. It's with uh, John Land, who is the USA Today best-selling author of over 50 books, including the best-selling and critically acclaimed Caitlin Strong series. And a few years ago, John Land took over the Murder, She Wrote book series based on the hit CBS television show starring Angela Lansbury as Jessica Fletcher. He re-energized that iconic series, which has now over 50 uh, books published in that series alone. The last six books were written by John Land. Uh, John's last Murder, She Wrote book, Murder in Season, was published in May and the latest Caitlin Strong book, number 11 in that thriller series, Strong from the Heart, was published in July. I really enjoyed chatting with uh, such a veteran pro of mystery and thriller industry like John Land. I uh, learned a lot about uh, his writing process, his background, his books, and some interesting tidbits about the industry and the Murder, She Wrote franchise. So stay tuned for that coming right up. But first, uh, check out my brand new uh, Patreon page at thrillingreads.com forward slash insider. It's a great way to support the podcast and getting some insider access as I'll begin to query my new crime thriller series that I'm writing here in uh, January. I'm going to start that process. So if you're a writer and you want to see the uh, process from the inside, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, go to thrillingreads.com forward slash insider and uh, check that out. All right, here is the last interview of what has been a surreal and crazy 2020 with the awesome John Land. Hi, everybody. This is Alan with Meet the Thriller Author. And uh, for today's podcast, I have John Land on Zoom. How are you doing this morning, John? I'm doing great. I, as long, when, if, if we're talking about thrillers, I'm a happy man. Oh, yeah. So I'm so excited to have you uh, on the show because you have such an, an incredible uh, background. But uh, for listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, not a lot to tell. You might say that I've been practicing social distancing all my life. Working in isolation is nothing new for me because that's what I've been doing my entire career. Writing is the only thing I've ever done. I'm a thriller writer, not only by choice, but by instinct. I think I was born a thriller writer. I know that because at Brown, I did a novel as my senior thesis. That wasn't supposed to be a thriller. It became a thriller because that's what I am. It's what I read. And I always say to reader, I say to writers, you know, when they say, what should I write? You know, I love to write, but I'm all over the place. Well, what do you enjoy reading the most? Whatever you enjoy reading the most is what you have to write. And if you don't read at all, then you can't write at all. Those two things, reading and writing, in general and in the specific, they're hand in hand. They're, they're, they're joined literally at the hip. Show me a writer who never, who isn't a reader, and I'll show you a lousy writer. Yeah, that was the thing with me too. When I started thinking about writing, I'm like, well, what should I write? I'm like, well, all I'm reading is thrillers. So <laughs> this is my answer. <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there is a, I, I, I talk about often the relationship between the reader and the writer. It's a very personal relationship. It's a very intimate relationship. <laughs> What do I mean by that? Well, I consider myself first and foremost a storyteller. And if you think about stories, you go back to being a four, three, four, five-year-old kid, and you beg your father, mother, grandfather, grandmother to read you a story or tell you a story before you go to bed. What a, what a thriller writer does is when you read the book, when you read Jack Reacher, you know, Lee Child's books, James Rollins, Steve Berry, hopefully me, you get the same feeling you got as a four or five-year-old, three-year-old when someone was reading you a story at your bedside. You become, the imagination, Alan, does not age. The rest of us, unfortunately, does. The imagination does not, never grows up. And the mark of a great anything in pop culture, in entertainment, is that it makes us feel like a kid again. For me, I think about the, my obsession with Game of Thrones, all through the, the show's run, but especially the final season, which I loved, even though a lot of diehard fans didn't. 
I thought the long night, the third episode, the battle with the dead was the greatest 90 minutes of television in history. But here's the, here's why I love game of Thrones. Here's what game of Thrones did for me specifically. I can still remember as a five or six or seven year old, my father taking me to Jason and the Argonauts with the stop motion animation. When the, when the, when the Colossus of Rhodes steps down off the pedestal. I had never seen anything like that as a kid. And I was, that movie stuck in my head, the, the, the sword fight with the skeletons in the end, with which Ray, Ray Harryhauser said was the greatest scene he ever animated uh, and also the most difficult. When I watched Game of Thrones, I felt like that six-year-old kid again. When people read my books, I want them to feel like a kid again, in the sense that they're swept away into another world. And when they're reading my books, they're not in the, the world around them ceases to be. And it becomes like virtual reality. You're transported into the world of Caitlin Strong or Jessica Fletcher, um, but especially Caitlin Strong and before her, several others. And, th- and that's the magic of what a thriller writer is trying to do. You're really prolific too, because you even wrote the. I was when I was doing my research. You wrote. You also wrote science fiction. You've written science fiction also. So there's no genre have, for you. Yes, I have a sci-fi series uh, with Heather Graham, the great Heather Graham. Um, she has a hundred million books in print. I have twenty-seven, uh, so she's a little ahead of me. Um, twenty-seven. Period. Not not a, not twenty-seven million. Here's the thing about writing. Writing is a business. I love what I do but it's a business and any business to be successful cannot stay the same. You have to diversify. Why do we think as writers, we're immune to diversification? I also write nonfiction. I, I, I do legacy series like Murder, She Wrote and Capital Crimes. And although if you ask me what I, what I love doing, what I love writing the most, I obviously Caitlin's, I'd say Caitlin Strong because I created her. And there's a rhythm and a naturalness to that. But what I strive to do, whether I'm, whatever I'm writing, is to replicate that same sense of ownership, that same sense of story that I, that I capture in the Caitlin Strong books. The most important advice I ever got about, what, about diversification, about being able to change horses in the middle of the stream, still ride your other horse, but be able to go back and forth between a number of horses was my first agent, the late great Tony Mendez, a, a legend in the literary business, told me you can write anything. And she was speaking of you in the general sense. You can write anything if you know the characters. Mm. It doesn't matter. Because anything I write, Alan, has the same. I am I'm all about pacing. I'm all about beginning a hook to begin every chapter and a cliffhanger to end every chapter, no matter what I'm writing. If I were writing a shopping list, <laughs> it would have a hook at the beginning and it would have a cliffhanger at the end. Now that is that manipulative? Absolutely. Just like watching an Alfred Hitchcock film, you're being manipulated. You're only seeing in great films like Hitchcock's, like movies like The Usual Suspects, you're only seeing what the director allows you to see. Kevin Spacey's character in The Usual Suspects sees the wall. We don't see the wall. We don't, we don't see the wall that he, because if we did, we'd be even with him instead of a step behind him. So um, that's the key. It's, it, it's, it's what you put into it how you keep the reader in suspense, no matter what you're writing. Is it manipulative? Yes. But anything that is entertainment is by its own nature manipulative with the exception of professional sports, because we don't know the ending when it starts. Whereas when we're writing a movie or a book, we do. Yeah. That's as readers. That's what we want too. Like we want to write, we want want a book that we can't put down and keep reading. (laughs) Absolutely. You want to be manipulated. Yes. You want to be putty in someone's hands. I, I'll tell you, I watch America's Got Talent for one reason, the magicians. I see things with these mentalists and magicians that are physically impossible. Unless it's really magic, Alan, it couldn't be. 
It's there is no way. And I've watched it. They used to say magic would never survive the move to television because you can't misdirect a camera. Well, I've watched these guys on America's Got Talent in super slow motion. There's no sleight of hand. So I don't know what it is they're doing or how they stick an envelope in their pocket that's sealed. And when they open the envelope up at the end of their trick, exactly what they want is on page inside. But they never reached into their pack jacket before then. So how did the thing get, how did the envelope get there? Well, they act, they showed it. How did that piece of paper get inside that envelope? How? It never was, obviously, but when do they make the switch? What is the thing? So you watch that and, and you can't figure it out. And the puzzle of a thriller is like being in the hands of a great magician. You know something terrible is going to happen. Your hero is putting the pieces of a puzzle together, but you don't know what. At the beginning of Strong from the Heart, the latest Caitlin Strong book, the opening scene, the prologue, 300 people die in the, in the small Texas-Mexico border town of Camino Pass overnight in a matter of minutes or seconds. Three, they're all dead. Every single person. What can kill an entire town? And, and by nature, if it can kill an entire town, can it kill a lot more than that? So it's the same thing. We're talking about being that kid, that kid in the bed or the, the adult. Why do we love magicians? Because they make us feel like kids again. Why do we love thrillers? Because they make us feel like kids again. And that's what entertainment should do when you watch a great movie, when you read a great book. Anything you do especially, and I think we all appreciate this more now, mm. with COVID, so much has been taken away from us that, that we relied on what I call mental vacations. Going to the movies for two hours, going to a play, going to whatever you like. It gives you a chance to get away from the news, to get away from the election thing, which is, which end, you know, which is over at long last. Yeah. Um, we lost so much of our leisure time to the point where somebody coined the, coined the great term blurs day because every day was the same. <laughs> so I think what we realized from the COVID experience, two things. One, how vital these mental vacations are in our lives. Two, the great responsibility writers like I have when we're promising you five or six hours of great reading entertainment. Well, now you need that reading entertainment more than you've ever needed it before which gives us even more responsibility to deliver. I think those two things have crystallized to an unfathomable degree in these past 10 months. And so what is it when you're, when you're writing your, your writing process then to, to put all this together, do you, um, do you outline, do you pants by seat of your pants? What's your process? I, have, I you know what? Um, if I don't know what's going to happen next, the reader can't possibly know. That's a very risky way to write because I can tell when I read a book, an outliner from a pantser, and I can tell when the outliner is so reliant on the outline, the book gets dull because it feels like you're reading a math problem, not so much a book because everything just kind of fits. Life doesn't unfold like an outline. Life unfolds like a blank page that fills in after you turn it. So I write the way life is. Um, it unfolds in my mind as I'm writing it. I know where I'm going approximately, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And I don't know on the backs of what characters. I know in a series, obviously, because almost everything I do is a series, that there's going to be the, the recurring cast and they're going to be involved. But there are always subplots. There's always a villain. Um, there's always the big thing that happens and the characters who are behind that and creating them. And many times um, I just finished my second book in the capital crime series, which I've taken over 20 pages into the book. I realized I needed a second plot, a secondary plot. Well, I should have known that to begin with. I always secondary plot. I guess I didn't know what it was going to be. And boom, there it was about 80 pages in. I said, wait a minute. Who's the villain? Because I hadn't introduced him yet. And how do we get back to the prologue 
of that book, which is this mysterious tanker full of some deadly poison, the deadliest something ever known to man, is being taken for disposal in the dark of night in a military convoy when it vanishes off the face of the earth. Okay, great. What's inside? And who was responsible for creating it? So a lot of times I'm going back, I'm shifting chapters, I'm moving around. I trust my instincts. Instincts trump outlining for me, not for everybody. You as a right find their own way. What works for me, just like in the weight room, what gets my what, what helps me achieve my goals in the weight room are you can't think you're going to get the same um, effects, the same results from the same workout. You have to find the workout that's right for you. You have to find the pacing and the and the method, the methodology that's right for you. But you know what? Whatever gets you from page one to the finish of the book, because you can't publish a book unless you finish it. And I can't tell you how many times writers have said to me, I've written 50 pages 10 times. I just don't know where to go from there. And I say, you know, if you'd written 50 pages 10 times, you'd have one book. But they don't. Because if you, being a natural, that's what I meant when I said before about being a storyteller. Being a storyteller allows you to know what you need and when you need it. It's all about pace. It's all about rhythm. It's about tone. It's, it's, it's about when is it time to shift to another POV? And you have to rely on that instinct. Now, I've done over 50 books, but I've been doing it this way since my first one. Mm-hmm. I've always been a seat-of-the-pants writer who relies on instinctive, this instinctive nature of story because I let I get out of the way. I let my characters do the work, and I let my story dictate where it wants to go and where it takes me. And you, you work, you work in so many different projects, and and you publish several books a year. Do you work on well, on several at the same time, or one at a time? <laughs> one thing I can't do is I can't create two books at once. I can be proofreading one, or doing the galleys of one, or doing the. Prim- I have to. I mean, because I've got so many books coming out. I've never tried to write two books at the same time. I think it would probably be impossible because. Writing a book is living. You live with that project. For those six, eight, six or eight weeks, that's what a first draft takes me to write. Say it's eight, which is more the average. Those eight weeks, there is never a moment awake or asleep where mine, my mind isn't working on that book. It, it is incredibly focused, not just during the times where I'm writing, but in my subconscious working out what's coming next. That when I say, I don't know what's coming next, I think maybe my, my subconscious kind of does. And it's prescribing to me. My imagination is prescribing to me what it figured out the night before when I was asleep. And I trust that. Uh, So that, that, that's my process. That's how I do it. But not everybody can do that. And I was, I was curious too, when you took over like the murder she wrote a few years ago, because not only is that an iconic, of course, Jessica Fletcher, but you also took it over from a legendary Donald Bain. But I mean, you had a lot of experience and success already. But how was that for you? Was it were you, was it nerve wracking? Was it were you like, ah, oh, that's a, I can do it? My, my agent called me on a Sunday, and when you get a call from your agent on a Sunday, it's usually somebody died, <laughs> somebody you both know died. You know, you know. But I answered the phone, and Bob DeForio said, "You know, my, you know, Don Bain writes. You know, my friend. You know, was." Bob's very good friend, as well as his client, is not, is not well. He's ill. And in fact, he was dying. And he's not going to be able, my agent told me to write the murder she wrote books anymore. I'd like to know if you're interested. So in my head, I thought, I've never written a mystery. I've never written first person. I've never written from the viewpoint of an older woman. So my answer, of course, was yes, count <laughs> me in. Because in this business, you never know where the next job is going to come. So in this business, here's the mantra. The answer is yes. What was the question? Like the actor who says, can you ride a horse? Absolutely. Do I get the part? Yep. Then you go out and learn how to ride the horse. 
writing Murder, She Wrote was a great experience for me. I'm done with the series now. I got fired um, after six books. I, I, I'd like to say why, but they still haven't told me. Um, if people want to know why I'm not writing Murder, She Wrote anymore, you're going to have to contact someone at Berkeley because they still haven't told me why. Because my books won awards. You know, yeah, I'm surprised. <laughs> my, the best reviews uh, that the series had ever gotten. Um, but here's why it was a great experience. It's easy to own the characters you create. They're yours. It's like when you take a dog as a puppy and you raise it. It's like you're, you know, your own kid. But Jessica Fletcher is like a, was like a shelter dog. I had no idea where, like you bring a dog into the house, you have no idea of its background. No matter what anybody tells you, you have no idea what that dog went through. Or when you adopt a 12-year-old. You know, it's kind of like buying something already assembled, you know, <laughs> instead of putting it together. But maybe the few pieces didn't come exactly the way they're supposed to, right? So, but with Jessica Fletcher, I was taking over an iconic character. Here was the problem. Don Bain had never watched the show. So his <laughs> Jessica was not Angela Lansbury. I had never read a single book, but I watched every episode of the show. Mm-hmm. Murder, She Wrote, and Columbo were my two favorite mysteries. And they were surprisingly similar. Why? Because the original creators of Columbo, two of them, there were four, um, Tom Sawyer, Peter Fisher, and then William Levinson, no, Richard Levinson and William Link, um, or something like that. They had also created Columbo. I didn't know that. For NBC Universal. So, So that's why so many of the Murder, She Wrote episodes look a little bit like the Columbos. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot more Murder, She Wrote's, almost 275 episodes of Murder, She Wrote, compared, I believe, to less than 100 Columbos significantly, maybe around 75 or 80, because they were more of a, they weren't every week. So I have this massive responsibility, but I had to define how I was going to do it. I didn't like the books that I read, so I couldn't do that. They weren't for me. And I didn't think they were for Jessica Fletcher because they didn't resemble the TV show in my mind. They didn't. So I went back. I ignored the books, Alan. I said, okay, I'm throwing the books out. I'm going back and I'm going to pick up like this is the first book in the series written for a 2021 audience of Murder, She Wrote. Jessica has a cell phone. Jessica calls, uses Uber. Jessica is has entered the modern age. and. The pacing, because remember, when you write a TV episode, there's a cliffhanger every seven minutes because of the commercials. So it was a very natural way for me to write, to take the series back to its roots. In other words, I took ownership of Jessica Fletcher. I made Jessica Fletcher her my, my own by making Jessica Fletcher go back to Angela Lansbury. That was what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And... There was a recent review posted on Amazon of Murder in Season, my most recent and final one, in which I got three stars, and it was a great review because the reviewer said, the reader, just a reader, saying it would have been nice because they nailed it. They said, this guy never read any of the other books. He's using the TV series as his source. Berkeley should have put a disclaimer. <laughs> Don't <laughs> this, well, this series now will not use any of the reference points from the, the lexicon, the wiki, I threw it all out because Jessica had to become mine. I couldn't write Don Bain's Jessica. I had to write Angela Lansbury's Jessica. And once I re, once I got that, once I watched, I rewatched a bunch of the classic episodes, my favorite episodes, Murder Takes the Bus, The Murder of Sherlock Holmes, I can't remember all the titles. I can can tell you more of the, I can remember some of the twist endings, how some of those moments in the end where she said, where she'll go, but that jacket, you weren't wearing that jacket that night. Then how did that end up in your pocket? You know, something like that. So I had a blast writing the series and it taught me that I could take ownership of someone I don't own technically or I didn't create. So it was a wonderful experience. And I know that I'm, it's, it's a rare ability in this business to go out on top, but I know the last three books that I've done in this series, Murder in Time, I mean, sorry, Time for Murder, 
The Murder of Twelve, and Murder in Season are the three best that have ever been written in the series. I know that. Mm-hmm. And I feel great about it. And the fact that Berkeley doesn't agree, well, that's their problem. Yeah, because there's a lot of the reviews too. So you freshen it up, give it new life. And so, yeah, so that's kind of... And, you know, I don't think it was... Um, you know, I, I think there was some flack caught by by reader. You know, you had some people who had never watched the TV series who only know the books. Oh, interesting. That's so and, weird. You know, you know, they. But my the people who enjoy my books the most are fans of the TV series. Yeah. Well, she, she's on the cover of all the books. Absolutely, <laughs> the author of all the books. Yeah. So, but yet that's the irony of Berkeley hiring a writer who had never watched the series originally. Yeah. So he took liberties with the series. And, and, and people say, well, what, what, how do you know this? I'll tell you how I know it. One of the showrunners, Tom Sawyer, one of the four guys who created Murder, she wrote, is a friend of mine. I sent him, um, I didn't send him the first, any of the first three. I was scared. Mm-hmm. I sent him murder in, uh, A Time for Murder. Um, and he said, this is exactly what we would be writing if the series were on today. Oh, nice. So if you want to criticize me for what I did, you're very justified. But what I did was to take the series back to its roots, back to the stories of its plotting. If, you know, we get caught up in labels, Alan. We get caught up with cozy mystery. Well, the term cozy mystery didn't exist when the show came on the air in 1984. So by nature, Murder, She Wrote couldn't have been something that didn't exist. Hmm. Beyond that, go to Barnes & Noble. You know who they shall, who they consider to be a cozy mystery writer? Agatha Christie. Yeah, I've seen that one. Well, okay. Agatha Christie's a cozy writer. So is John Land writing as Jessica Fletcher. Same thing. Murder of 12 is is a murder she wrote version of, and then there were none. There's no way my predecessor or my successor would ever even consider doing anything as ambitious as the murder of 12. And yet, Murder Takes the Bus is what I based the murder of 12 on. The the classic episode from the first season where Jessica is stranded by a storm when a road washes out in a roadside diner with 10 strangers being killed one at a time. Hmm. You know, and actually only one, and there's two other attacks, but only one really dies because it's murder. Uh, (laughs) But it was actually also, if you watch the series, if you watch that episode, no. Notice, but if you notice, it's also a takeoff on the classic Twilight episode, Twilight Zone episode. Will the real Martian please? Oh stand? yeah, I remember that one. I feel that same one. Same setup. <laughs> yeah. The same. I think it's. It might. It looks like they made the diner look exactly like that diner, and they yeah. put everybody interspersed among the tables the same way they had them at that. You know, yeah. people, one guy's drink. So I think. I'll never, I, I've got to ask my friend Tom Sawyer about that. I don't yeah. know if he was working on that particular episode, but I, I'm going to bet you that murder takes the bus. And there was another episode uh, in the third or fourth season that was a bunch of strangers gathered marooned somewhere being killed one at a time. So um, in the case of what I did with murder, she wrote, I didn't reinvent the wheel. I just put on, you know, fresh steel belted radials uh, oh. on a, on a sports car. Uh. Um, I didn't like the fact that the series had been turned into a plotting old station wagon. Mm. It just didn't feel right to me. It was never supposed to be that. So that's never what the writers intended it to be. And um, I know if, you know, Angela, one of the great treats I got was Angela Lansbury on Facebook liked to comment about the murder of 12. And it turned out it was really her. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, because Tom, Tom Sawyer told her about me and about yeah. the murder of 12, which I dedicated to Angela Lansbury. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, you know, they were going to do another, they were going to do a takeoff. Uh, they were going to do Murder, She Wrote again about eight or nine years ago with. Um, oh, yeah. Octavia Spencer. Octavia yeah. Spencer. And, and Jessica and Angela Lansbury said she didn't approve. Yeah. And that's it. Octavia Spencer said, if Jesse, if Angela Lansbury doesn't approve, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, I drop out. I'm not doing it. And that's why in a time for murder, I think I came up with the way you could do murder. She wrote again, mm-hmm. you would do it with the younger Jessica Fletcher, which is what I do. 
in a time for murder. And then Angela Lansbury could introduce each episode. Hmm. You know, when I was a younger woman, here's imagine Angela Lansbury playing a kind of Rod Serling, Alfred Hitchcock role. Yeah. At the beginning and end of every episode. Or for those of us who grew up with the outer limits, the control voice, there is nothing wrong with your TV set. (laughs) We are controlling transmission. Yeah, well, it sounds like it was a blast writing those books, though. So that's uh, it, it comes off on the books because they've written so well received. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> if you, I, I get asked a lot, Alan, what's the most important thing a writer should know? And, and the easiest answer is tell a great story. I used to say, most important thing is, yeah, tell a story, tell a great story, but beginning, middle, and end. I mean, that's the key to telling a great story have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It sounds simple. A lot of writers don't know how to do it. Beyond that, though, beyond that, now I say, okay, don't just tell a great story. Have fun telling a great story. Because if you have fun as a writer, the reader is going to have fun. You cannot, I'm baffled by the fact, you know, there are some actors like Johnny Depp who never watch their own movies because they can't stand their performances. They hate their acting. They can't look at themselves. Writers have to be their own number one fans. Because if if I don't love, if I don't think I've just written a great book that you're going to love, how can you be expected to love it if I don't love it? No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you have to be your own greatest fan because that tells you what you're doing is going to resonate with the same people. Because remember, you're not the only one, you're not the first, just the one who's writing your book. You're also the first one who's reading it. So you're the first reader. You're the person you're trying to, 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 to hook on the plot. And that's why I love making it up as I go along. Because I never know what's going to happen next. And when I surprise myself, uh, it, I have, I took liberties having great editors at Berkeley and I need to give credit where credit is due. I had three great editors at Berkeley, three different people for the six books. Um, And whenever I stepped out of line, because to their credit, they left me alone. They didn't micromanage me. They didn't say, all right, you're taking over for Don Bain. You've got to write a Don Bain book. Mm. They never said that. They deserve a tremendous amount of credit for that. And they deserve a tremendous amount of credit for little things. Like I had a scene in A Time for Murder where all of a sudden I needed a cliffhanger at the end of a chapter. I mean, I just needed. So, oh, and then, so Seth Hazlitt says to Jessica, not only that, Jessica, she was pregnant. (laughs) So now it's like, oh my God, now we've got a dead body. But a dead body was pregnant. Things my editor flagged was, no. Are lines you don't cross. You don't kill a pregnant woman on murder, she wrote. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like one of the things we'd always do. I had so much fun with this. How many people are you going to kill this time? It was they never asked me that directly to their credit, but it was like, you know, I, I kind of had a, a prescribed limit that I flirt that I exceeded a little bit with the murder of 12. Um, three or four people. <laughs> but they're not all they're not dying on screen so it's like you know two or three murders maybe one and one or two you know, maybe get up to four or five uh which reminds me of a story when mickey uh mike hammer uh who created mickey spillane in one of his books and it's not it's, i don't believe it's i the jury it's another one i the jury ends with him killing a woman mike hammer kills so many people in the climax that he has to reload he has to, he uses he has to reload his machine gun twice. He gets a note back from his editor. Book great ending much much too violent. Note have him reload only once. <laughs> so now when you write in your Caitlin Strong she's your character and uh, and you have a little bit more cuz it's more of a, a traditional well not traditional but more of a hard edge thriller action packed. Do you feel yes. more freedom when you're writing those compared to the British yeah. wrote? No, for you know, for a thousand reasons, the, the number one is the one you just illuminated. In a thriller, you don't have to hold back. Yeah. And I own, and Caitlin Strong is my creation, so I, I don't have to any. I don't owe anybody any explanations. 
as to her motivations or, or why she does something. Um, so, um, and the other thing is, the real challenge for me in Murder, she wrote, is that it's first person. Mm-hmm. So when you have a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter, by nature, the beginning of the next chapter has to resolve that cliffhanger because you don't have the ability to cut away to another POV. The great thing about the thriller form is that it allows you to cut from one point of view to another. And then you keep ending each one with cliffhangers. So you can see where this is going. You get Caitlin, you get Court Wesley, you get the villain. You get Caitlin, you get Court Wesley, you get the villain. It's not that rhythmical. It's not that Hmm. prescribed. But that's at some points the way. And of course, then things will come together. And now you you go from a lot of individual perspectives, POVs, to to basically two by the end. Sometimes, sometimes three Um, or, you know, but. But by then, now you're having fun. Now, now you've kind of figured everything out and, and, you're, and you're just getting to the end. Um, but the thriller form of, of, the, of the flash cuts, the inner cutting of, of, of parallel plotting. And with the Caitlin Strong series, remember too, I have the added fun of writing the flashback sequences where you meet one of Caitlin's ancestor Texas Rangers her father, her grandfather, great-grandfather, or her great-great-grandfather, Steel Dust Jack Strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody's real name, by the way, Steel Dust Jack was somebody's nickname. And I, I asked them if I could take it. Oh. Um, so uh, so you, now I've got to, now I, the fun in my books is not only trying to figure out the puzzle in the present, it's trying to figure out how the puzzle in the past connects to the puzzle in the present. You know, and I think that's one of the things that really distinguishes the Caitlin Strong thrillers, not only from the other ones that I've written, but the other ones almost anyone has written. Because I don't think anybody's ever done with a series what I've done using the past as a thread with mm-hmm. Caitlin Strong. Yeah, and and the the latest one is Strong from the Heart, which is the eleventh book in the series, right? And that's you're, you're tackling some big issues like the opiates and big pharma and and you know uh, there's there's a perfect example of what I do and how I tweak it because I wanted to do a story, you know, it was on the headlines until COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the book was finished before COVID, basically. Before COVID, opioid the opioid crisis was on the front page of the New York Times yeah. almost every day or at least five days a week. It wasn't, you know, it's okay. You know what? I wanted to answer a few questions. I wanted to say, okay, who's behind it being this bad? And why didn't some, why didn't the government do something about this before? Why did they short circuit all the things they could have done to win the war on drugs? Well, clearly somebody in Washington didn't want to win the war on drugs. So that was one jumping off point. The other jumping off point was, all this started because of Mexico, drugs. Mm-hmm. It's all, it all the fascination with drugs, where drugs come from, um, illegal drugs. It's all about that drug smuggling over the Mexican border starting in the early 20th century, late 19th century. But how did Mexico become a narco traficante country? And to answer the second question first, which you'll see in Strong from the Heart, when the Chinese immigrated to America, and built the railroads. The Chinese also immigrated to Mexico and with them they brought poppy seeds because they had determined that Mexico had the ideal climate to grow opium, which was of course the scourge of China. The black tar heroin trade grew out, which was the first real, that marijuana going back a long way back. But the other thing was, the Chinese Mexicans who took names like Felipe Wong, the villain, one of the villains of Strong from the Heart, he's a real person. He was, he was over there in the 1870s. They didn't want what they learned from the, the triad in China was you don't, you, you, everything is division. You put, you take this territory, I'll take this territory. The cartels were born in the 1870s when China divvied up Mexico for who, which crime boss was going to run what part of Mexico and grow his poppies and sell his poppies. Um, what I don't know is how the Chinese fell out of favor and the cartels came into existence exactly. Yeah. Um, but then 
when I got into the book, it jumps off from the point that one of Caitlin's surrogate sons, who's a high school senior, ODs and almost dies of an opioid overdose. And because he's a high school kid, remember, he snorts, the kids snort it. They don't take the pills. They, they grind them up and they snort it because then you get the immediate high, like heroin, yeah. Oxycontin. I mean, it's the same. It's a very comparable effect. Yeah. Very addicting. Um, but as I got into it, a couple hundred pages, I said, something's missing. And then I realized the boy has a problem, but so does Caitlin. Caitlin's taking Vicodin because she had a traumatic brain injury, a TBI, in the book before this one. Just coincidentally. No. She, was too, she was too close to an explosion. When you're too close to an explosion, you get, it's not exactly what a concussion is, but it is a, your brain just, it's a traumatic brain injury. So she's had terrible headaches for months. And the only thing that relieves them is Vicodin. Every time she gets a headache, she pops a pill. And at one point in the book, she realized, Luke, the boy says to her, you're popping Vicodins all the time. Why don't you give it up? Why don't you, what, you know, what, what, she realizes, you know what? I'm addicted. I'm addicted to Vicodin. Just like, so that to me made the book complete because I had Caitlin, my protagonist, my hero, directly affected, directly affected by what, um, by what she would, the scourge she was fighting. And I honestly think, you know, how well Strong from the Heart is being received. It's most, it is the best received book in the series. 11 books in. 11th book in the series. Best received one yet. Yeah, because uh, it puts it so real, too, for the character, too. Like, you know, the uh, flawed and the, the flaws and the, the good and the bad, everything in there. It just makes it so much more compelling to read it for makes the readers. It, it, it adds a credibility that often goes lacking in all thrillers, not just mine, it adds a relevance and a resonance so that my books are always visual. That's what I do best. Yeah. How do I make them visceral? So not only do you see them, you feel them. And that's the challenge to make them visceral. And I think what distinguishes strong from the heart, the most recent one from the others is the visceral nature of a character being directly affected by what she's trying to destroy. Mm -hmm. I was curious too, now with, especially with your, with your uh, background and your experience um, how, about addressing the pandemic in your future writing. Uh, Cause people want, you know, the people want to escape that, but how do you feel? Are you going to write about it? Or? That is the, that's the, that's the $64,000 question. And let me ask you this. Let me ask, let me answer it this way. First, after nine 11, could anybody put the Twin Towers in a book again? No, because they were gone. I think it's very disingenuous to the reader to not have COVID play some role in future books. Not as a pandemic, but as the ch you walk into a restaurant and it's different than it was before, mm -hmm. at least for a couple more years. They're, we're not going back to 100% capacity for quite a while. So that should be made reference to. Um, I think it's, I know we're sick of it and I know there are going to be a lot of thriller writers who write books set three or four or five years from now where COVID doesn't even come into play. But to me, I, I model myself, especially in the Caitlin Strong books after the great James Lee Burke, who writes the Dave Roby show novels. He did a post Katrina because his books are set in New Orleans, mm -hmm. in Louisiana, in the bayou. So he did a post-Katrina book. He didn't ignore Katrina. He used it as a plot point in a book. He was actually very angry, and you could feel that Robichaud's anger about what had happened was, had been translated, transferred onto his, the author, James, James Lee Burke's author. Oh, I mean, anger. So I don't want to make – I'm not going to get up on my soapbox and preach about it. But I'm not going to ignore it any more than we could ignore 9-11. 9-11, .11, in fact, the post-COVID thriller, there's so much, when you think about how it was bungled as badly as it was by the, by the outgoing administration, when you think about 
what we're going through now because it's all related. I mean, watch Seven Days in May, the greatest political thriller ever made about an attempted overthrow of the United States government. Tell me if it feels very fictional anymore. With what we're going through right now, with the election, the results of the election, you know, you've got in the entire Congress, as of this morning, entire Congress, House and Senate, 27 Republicans who say that Trump lost. 27 out of what? 300 almost? Mm -hmm. 280? All right. Beyond the fact they have no spines. Are you telling me? We could, they wouldn't support a coup, a lot of them. They wouldn't, st- they would actually stand up to him. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't stand up to him. They would let him do pr- a lot of, not all of them, but a lot of them would let him do any of the Ted Cruz's of the world, the Marco Rubio's of the world, the Ron Johnson's of the world. Yes, they would support a coup, a, a disregard of the votes and the end of democracy in the United States. According to Mike Lee, we'd be better off without democracy, according to one of his tweets. So you want, where do I find my villains? It's not hard to find. You can find your villains. My, you can find my villains on CNN or the models for my villains on CNN and MSNBC every night, every day. They're right there in front of you. And they're the most dangerous people in the country. And what about on the publishing industry with the pandemic? Do you think there was already so many changes going on in the publishing industry and now you got the pandemic. What do you see in the next few years for the industry? <laughs> Wow. Well, we've got Simon and Shu. We've got the big four is going to be coming. The big, the big five is becoming the big four. Mm. I worry big, the big publishers will be able to survive. Um, and now hopefully with the vaccine stores are going to open up again as they were, but how many bookstores are not going to open up again? How many are we going to lose? How many independent publishers are, are going to lose so much money? Um, because Remember when Amazon changes the delivery date of a book, you know, they're usually not changing the delivery date of a New York Times bestseller, but all those independent publishers, you know, who, you know, are distributed by, they don't have their own sales force. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I worry about independent publishers. Um, I worry, you know, I worry about authors like me. I worry about me, but authors like me, because what we seem to have now, Alan, is a, a small, very small number of authors who are doing very well. And then everybody else, like trying to pick at the, you know, kind of like uh, Remora fish, trying to pick <laughs> at whatever's left over. There used to be a thriving middle in publishing where you could survive as a paperback author and paperback died. Um, you could survive in so many different definitions. Now it seems like there's very few definitions you can you can really survive and thrive as a writer. I worry in the post-COVID world, again, as when when this forces companies to retrench, to circle the wagons and focus more and more on what on the sure things. And that I don't know if publishers know how to launch new talent anymore. I don't know if it's possible. If the Da Vinci Code came out today, I don't know if it would sell mm-hmm. because it, it would be very difficult to position it. First of all, the Da Vinci Code, the number one thing that made it what it was is Random House sent an unprecedented, they, they distributed 15,000 print galleys. Oh. And they got the word of mouth saying, this is, maybe it wasn't the best, it was far from the best thriller ever, but it was the most groundbreaking thriller because it, thrillers were dead. And then you had this mm-hmm. and boom, overnight, thrillers were back. You know, it was a phenomenal success, but it would not have been that way. Just like in the film business, you, the greatest film of all time, The Godfather, you couldn't get it made today. Yeah. Jaws would be made, but it would be an entirely different movie. And you would forget it like you forgot Meg with Jason Stratham. Stratham. Uh, any bad movie, just pay him $10 million, they'll do the role. Um, because that was you know what, what an actor like that doing that kind of movie. Yeah, I mean, you you, you watch it, and you forget it. Jaws and The Godfather, you don't, you never forget those. Oh. <laughs> you know, movies like Three Days of the Condor, based on the great book by James Grady, Six Days of the Condor. You 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 walk out of that theater and you can't get the scene at the end 
where the assassin brilliantly played by Max Moncito, Condor, Robert Redford's amateur Condor and what awaits him. Mm -hmm. And finally he says, it will happen this way. You'll be walking. And then he predicts what's going to happen. And the very next scene, that's exactly what happens. In other words, where are those movies now? They're too expensive to show up on, on, on originally on cable, but they're not big enough to make their money back without young stars and music and, you know, video games and Avengers and stuff like that. So, so we're into a, what I, this is not a blip, as I say, it's a paradigm shift. And I don't think we know what the world of publishing yet is going to look like on the other side, but it's not going to be better and it's probably going to be worse. And so what's, uh, what's next for you? What are you working on now? What's, uh, what's coming up in the horizon? Wow. Um, so much. I'm always working on so much. Before I've taken over the great Margaret Truman's phenomenal capital crime series, also from the late Don Bain. Um, I've, and I've taken to it a lot more organically because it's a thriller series. Yeah. It's what I've been doing for 40 years. So it's, it, it just felt very natural for me, a more natural fit than murder. She wrote, I had to make murder. She wrote mine. Whereas it was very easy to find common ground between um, what had already been done in the capital crime series. So I just finished my first one in that series, murder on the Metro comes out February 16th. The second one I've just finished uh, murder at the CDC will be out the following year. Um, I've written, uh, I mentioned before my, you know, the, uh, that, you know, I had, a, I had to return something from a producer. Uh, I oh, have yeah. a production team that is working on one of which is Caitlin strong. Oh, um, you know, I've written two pilots, two, two series Bibles, and I'm now working. And it's so exciting. I'm working with a showrunner, a top showrunner on Caitlin strong um, to get her on the air. Because you asked me before was publishing, I think, Publishing is going to become increasingly reliant on game changers for success. Mm -hmm. Now, what that game changer is, a TV series with certain, or a movie, but especially a TV series, yeah. where we're actually doing a, a different book every season. Yeah. That's going to generate, um, I'll give you an example. The Longmire Mysteries yes, were great. not big bestsellers until they came, mm -hmm. became a television show. Yeah. I mean, so I want to follow the Longmire model. Um, Elmore Leonard was always, was a decent selling author, middleist mostly. He got two huge game changers in his career. I think it was Stick, but it might've been La Brava. Stephen King did a front page review on the New York Times, in the New York Times book review and called him in the 1990s, the greatest crime writer alive today. Yeah. And zoom, Stephen King said that. The review and and he went from being a mid-list, fairly successful author to a genre great. But even then, until the movies started popping out one after the other, Elmore Leonard was not a household name. Yeah, so I discovered now, him with the movies. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Now Lee Child, he was a household name before Tom Cruise played Reacher. Yeah. Just like Lestat was a household name before Tom Cruise played yeah, Lestat. No. And Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan was a household name before Harrison Ford took over for Alec Baldwin. I get such a kick out of these guys, right? Yeah. Don't mean to speak ill of the dead in the case of Clancy. And Anne Rice, wonderful human being. Uh, her son, Christopher, is a great guy, too. Great writer. Both great writers. But I get such a kick out of these authors who sell their work for a million dollars and then complain. Take out full-page ads in the New York Times, spending $90,000 of that million that you've got. Complaining. What do you think they're going to do? It's what they do. And the dumbest man, may he rest in peace, Clive Cussler. They made Raise the Titanic, one of the great thrillers of all time. It was so awful and did so poorly. The producer, Lord Lou Grade, who went, whose company went bankrupt because of it, said, raise the Titanic, it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic. <laughs> and they cast Richard Jordan, a TV actor, as Dirk Pitt. It might have been the worst casting. It might have been the worst movie ever made. You know, so you would think he learned his lesson. 
but no. <laughs> Sahara, he sells it to Disney. And, and, and the quote was, oh, no, no. This time I got an ironclad contract. I have, strip con I have control of the script and I have control of the actor. They, he approved the script they didn't use and they promised him they wouldn't hire Matthew McConaughey, which they ended up doing. I didn't know that was the same guy. <laughs> and then they sued him. Then he sued them. And not only did he lose and get his entire reputation trashed, he took on the Disney mafia. You don't do that. <laughs> he had to pay. He had to pay $8 million in their legal fees. Oh, wow. You know what? If you don't want your characters adapted, if you don't want it changed, either write it yourself. And if you're not a team player, it'll never get made. Or don't sell it. Yeah. But shut your if you sell it, shut up. Use the money, buy another house, buy another car, and leave me alone. Yeah, that'd be a nice problem to have. <laughs> I mean, Ian Fleming, by the way, did not like the choice of Sean Connery. Yeah, I read that. To play yeah. James Bond. And he is James Bond. Yeah. So maybe, you know, I look at now we're looking at an actress for Caitlin Strong. I don't want to mention her name. I don't want to give her. But she's been nominated for an Emmy Award three times. And she top-lined a movie that's well-known because it was the first movie, one of the first movies to debut on demand instead of going to theaters back in April. So I, they, I watched this movie when they told me they were going to make her an offer and they were going to send her everything. And I said, oh, my God. I'm, this woman was born to play Caitlin Strong. I mean, she's the perfect Caitlin Strong. Now, of course, now I'm setting myself up for, for <laughs> disappointment. Yeah. But it's, it's such, you know, it, it's, it's the great thing about being a writer is you never, it never feels old. No two days are ever the same. I wake up and I have an entire schedule for my day. And half the time I can't stick to it because stuff comes up. Mm. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. Uh, today, um, I was, I had it all planned out, but I got, today I got, the, the, the showrunners punch up on my script yeah. and I got the deck, the presentation deck that's going to go to the buyers and to the, our star, hopefully. Mm. I mean, she's so damn good and she's so talented. Um, you know, we, we're looking, there's someone else we, we have who we've, we, we currently have attached, if you want to call it. And she's fantastic. But this, this is another level. I mean, never mind the Emmy nominations. This is a smart martial arts trained, you know, Academy Award potential, Emmy Award. She's already proven she can win an Emmy. Mm -hmm. And I could never, you know, I could see, you know, and the nominees for Best Actress in a, uh, in a television series are blank. As Caitlin Strong. Well, you'll have to come back when it's uh, when it's uh, when the show's out. So. Yeah, well, I'm just setting myself up for a different kind of failure and disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well just stick needles in my eyes. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, the last question before I let you go for uh, aspiring writers that are listening to this uh, show, any uh, advice from you? Cause you have so much experience. Well, I already gave you the advice uh, earlier. Um, I would say, but I, I, it bears repeating. And that is have fun telling a great story. But the problem with, if you do that, you're still going to need an editor. You're still going to have to listen to other people. Publishing is a collaborative effort. Writing, let me put it this way, writing of any kind, especially screenwriting, but publishing also. Writing is a collaborative effort. Publishing is a collaborative effort. It takes a team to be successful. They say in court that a lawyer who defends himself has a fool for a client. A writer who edits his own book or her own book has a lousy book because you need objectivity. You need someone else to say, and if you're self-publishing, find the money to pay an editor. Do not self-publish anything that is not edited structurally, schematically, and conceptually, but also line edited. Nothing is worse than typos on yeah. every page in a self-published book. Um, you know, be, be a, in other words, however, however you're choosing to exploit the medium, whether it be self-publishing, independent with a smaller press, with one of the top five, some combina hybrid combination, you have to be a professional. You have to think like a professional. Create like an artist. 
but think like a professional. There would be the advice I would give. All right. Well, John, well, thank you so much. And put, and uh, listeners, uh, johnlandbooks.com. Uh, that's your website. Best place for them to J-O-N-O-H. Okay. Yep. John Land. John Land, or, you know, or, you know, Google me. Um, follow me on Twitter at John D. Land, J-O-N-D-L-A-N-D. Follow me on Facebook. Get more news that way. I, I do a very bad job of, I'm not, of, of keeping my website updated. So, you know, find me other ways. If you want to know who I am, read my books. All right. Well, thank you so much, John, for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Alan. This was a blast. Thanks for listening to the Meet the Thriller Author podcast. Be sure to visit thrillerauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover great thrilling reads. If you enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and give a review uh, to it, wherever it is that you're listening to this uh, podcast, be it uh, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you're uh, listening to this right now, I would appreciate it. And uh, please do check out my own thriller novels over at my website at alanpeterson.com. Until next time.